0: I'm Sarah and I'm a writer. And I'm Terry and I'm a first grade teacher. And this is our podcast Reading During Recess. And today we are going to be talking about the
1: book One Crazy Summer by Rita Williams Garcia.
0: Yes, I'm so excited to talk about this book. Terry and I both love this book a lot. It was published in 2010. And in 2010, it was the National Book Award finalist for young people's literature. And then in 2011, it won the Coretta Scott King Award, the Scott O'Dell Award for historical fiction. And it was a Newbery Medal honor book.
1: And One Crazy Summer is the first book in the Gaither Sisters series. And the second book is called PSB11 and was published in 2013. And it features the girls returning to their home in Brooklyn. And the third book is called Gone Crazy in Alabama. And that was published in 2015 and features the sisters visiting their relatives in Autogua County, Alabama. And both of the sequels were also winners of the Coretta Scott King Award.
0: I had never read this book before, and I know that they say don't judge a book by its cover, but if I'm being honest, the reason this book caught my attention is because the front of it is just straight up covered in medals. (laughs) It's like, all right, I gotta see what this is all about then. I think that's fair.
1: I think that's a fair judge. I mean, why put them there, you know? Yeah. She knows what she's doing. I also just love the cover art. It's just very charming. Yeah. It's a beautiful illustration. It is. For those of you who haven't read this book, first of all, big mistake, go out and do it. (laughs) But we'll be nice and we will give you a summary. So the book opens on a plane ride from Brooklyn, New York to Oakland, California and we meet the three sisters there's 11 year old delphine nine-year-old vanetta and seven-year-old fern who are flying out to spend the summer with their estranged mother cecile
0: so cecile now refers to herself as Inzilla, and she left the girls just after fern's birth and the three were raised by their father and his mother big ma in brooklyn and so when they arrive in california delphine is put off by cecile's coldness towards them uh, Cecile demonstrates no motherly qualities and she refuses to cook for them or even let them into the kitchen because she uses the kitchen as a workspace for her printmaking and poetry.
1: So instead, each day um, she took their money when they first arrived and gives them a small allowance to go buy takeout dinners and also sends them to get breakfast from the local people center, which is run by the Black Panther Party. And that's how the girls start to get involved in the movement, because each day after breakfast, they attend the day camp, and they meet Sister Mukumbu, where Sister Mukumbu introduces them to the movement.
0: And so they learn about the revolution, and the Black Panther leaders who have been jailed or assassinated, and the party's important role in the community.
1: And the girls also start to build relationships with the other kids in the camp. Uh, We meet the three Angton sisters and Hirohito Woods, an African-American and Japanese boy whose father was arrested for his involvement in the party. And sister uh, Mukumbu starts preparing the kids to perform at an upcoming Panther rally, which makes Delphine kind of nervous. We've seen before that she's the main protector, uh, at least on this trip, of her sisters and really looks out for them and feels a little bit of apprehension about being a part of this rally.
0: Yes. And so at home, the tension slowly ease somewhat between Cecile and the girls. Cecile eventually gives Delphine, who needs a break from the egg rolls because they've been having egg rolls every day, and it's starting to upset their stomach. So Cecile gives Delphine permission to cook in the kitchen. And in the last few weeks of their stay, she also gives the girls money for a day trip to San Francisco. Uh, But when they return in the evening, however, they find Cecile being arrested along with two other members of the party. And that's
1: sort of the moment Delphine recognizes that her mom is being arrested for her poetry. And she says, for the crime of being something, saying something. And it's a big turning point in her perception of the movement. And Cecile protects the girls by telling the cops that they are not hers so that they're able to leave the scene and ultimately wind up staying with Hirohito from the, from the day school and his mother while Cecile is in jail.
0: And so the day of the rally arrives and the girls deliver a wildly successful recitation of one of their mother's poems called I birthed a nation. And afterwards, Fern, the youngest daughter, stays on stage to deliver a poem of her own, which outs Crazy Calvin, one of the most vocal of the group's members, as a police informant. Because it turns out that she saw him getting... Terry wrote this summary, and um, she explains that Fern found out that Crazy Calvin was a police informant because fern saw him getting a big old pat on the back from the cops just as the girls were leaving from san francisco but terry had a magnificent typo that (laughs) said
1: freudian slip
0: yeah freudian slip really (laughs) can
1: you read it turns out she saw him getting a big old pat on the back from the cops (laughs) i swear to god that was an accident amazing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so he's caught. And this is really exciting because now I'm just realizing, well, not just now, but I did realize in this moment, the first time the girls see Crazy Calvin is on their first trip to um, to pick up egg rolls, where they're gonna go call their father from the phone booth and it's being, did yeah, are you just realizing this now? Yeah. Yes! Crazy Kelvin is in the phone booth. And he's on the phone and he's kind of like hunched over and he like sees them looking at him. And and then, because then when they're at the camp and they meet him the next day, they recognize him from the phone booth. They say that's the man from the phone booth. He was on the phone with the cops. He's a bona fide police informant. Wow. He's a bootlicker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and anyway, so I was like, oh my god! Because it's such a um and I'll talk a little bit more about why I thought that this twist was really cool. Because I sort of felt Crazy Calvin was almost being, they, they call him Crazy Calvin, the rest of the Panthers, was almost kind of a straw man. Yeah. He comes off as very over the top, and it was kind of making me uncomfortable because I was, I don't know, it felt sort of like how a, a white person might perceive mm-hmm. someone in the Panther Party mm-hmm. based on stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And now I'm realizing that he's there as a police informant. He's not a Black Panther. Right. And I was like,
0: oh, my God. Yeah, I was super satisfied with that twist because that was a critique that I had running through the whole book where I was like, Crazy Kelvin is not really an accurate representation of the Black Panther Party's politics because he's fixated a lot on like uh, a lot of his character is him insulting white people, which Mm -hmm. isn't. We'll talk about this more. That's not the focus of the Black Panther Party, you know. It's not exactly. just. Exactly. Uh, but was how the media,
1: yeah. and made a point to portray them. So it's understandable that
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, <laughs> someone who is not part of the movement but who is instead working with the police mm-hmm. would come off that way. So I'm really glad that you feel the same way because that that was something that was I was I was thinking about a lot throughout the book. You know, I was like, this is kind of frustrating. And then it all makes sense. And we should have known, because obviously Crazy Kelvin in the phone booth is like a Chekhov's gun thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the infamous, if you show a man in a phone booth <laughs> in the first few chapters of a book, you better explain what he was doing in the phone booth by the end. And lo and behold, we know why he was in the phone booth.
0: We sure so do. I'm getting,
1: I'm getting sweaty. That's how.
0: Yeah, it's I also am. particularly satisfying because Crazy Kelvin was someone who was pretty mean to fern when she first started Mm -hmm. showing up at the panther meetings fern had a a baby doll that was a white baby doll and he made fun of her he was like you know he's like why do you hate yourself why would you carry around that white doll does she look like you and it was pretty mean to say to a child and fern she served it (laughs) she served revenge piping hot
1: she kept it to herself she saw it on the bus to san francisco she sees it as they're pulling away and she's like i saw something and the girls are like what did you see and she's like not telling and then she saves it she saves it to write this poem and i'll say i think this poem is great and is delivered um, at just the right time
0: so this is fern's poem
1: how old is fern fern is seven Okay, so this is poem... and I've read poetry written by seven-year-olds. Remember, I'm a first grade teacher. Yes. And I realize this was written by an adult, pretending to be a seven-year-old, but still, she's she's pretty good.
0: Yeah. So Fern says at the Black Panther rally, she gets up on the stage and says, This is a poem for Crazy Kelvin. It's called A Pat on the Back for a Good Puppy. <laughs> Which is a great title. <laughs> she says, Crazy Kelvin says off the pig. Crazy Kelvin slaps everyone five. The policeman pats Crazy Kelvin on the back. The policeman says good puppy. Crazy Kelvin says arf arf. Arf 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 arf. Because I saw the policeman pat your back, Crazy Kelvin. Surely did.
1: Woo! Go fern!
0: And then yeah. um the crowd goes wild and Crazy Kelvin is
1: Nervous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was an exciting scene. And this moment, uh, along with the girls' recitation of I birth the nation is seen by their mom. After they leave the stage, they realize that Cecile is there. She saw it. She has just been released from prison and she's able to return to the house with the girls. And that's, I, I believe the last night before the girls leave for Brooklyn. And. Cecile is in the kitchen with Delphine, and I believe they're cleaning up the, the printing press that was destroyed when the police raided the house. And Cecile shares some of her own childhood, which is very painful um, and involves homelessness, and I think we're led to believe some possible sexual assault, or at the very least the, the threat of it. She's not able to fully explain why she left the daughters and she's not able to give, you know, a really satisfying answer to Delphine. But I think that that's a very realistic situation Mm -hmm. and it still manages to ease some of the tension between the two.
0: Yes. And so the book ends in the minutes just before the girls board their flight from Oakland back home to Brooklyn. And they get out of line to finally hug their mother for the first time.
1: So, uh, Rita Williams-Garcia, who is the author, is a New York Times bestselling author of novels for young adults and middle grade readers. And her most recent novel, Gone Crazy in Alabama, ends the saga of the Gaither sisters, who appear in One Crazy Summer and P.S. 11. And her novels have been recipients of numerous awards, including, as we said, the Coretta Scott King Award, National Book Award finalists, Newbery Honor Book, Junior Library Guild, and the Scott O'Dell Prize for Historical Fiction. She also served on faculty at the Vermont College of Fine Arts Writing for Children, MFA program, and right
0: now lives in Queens, New York. So Garcia has talked some about her inspiration for One Crazy Summer, and she said, quote, In the case of One Crazy Summer, my ideas came from my childhood memories, a lot of research, and a lot of imagination. I remember the Black Panthers and how we were both fascinated by them but also a bit afraid of them. It made me wonder what would it be like for a kid who attended their breakfast programs and attended their rallies, and so then um, she goes on to say that she grew up during the same period that, that the story takes place, and her memories are still vivid. And she kept a diary from the late sixties, which she still has. And then she says, "Children were a big part of the Black Panther movement at that time. There were no books about the roles children played in the movement, so I thought I should write a story that focused on children. I was also in awe of the women in the movement, like Angela Davis, Elaine Brown." kathleen cleaver and many more they were strong and intelligent women who fought racism and sexism mainly through their words and then at the very end of the book she has a little author's note and she has these two sentences where she dedicates the book to a few different people and then she says i wanted to write this story for those children who witnessed and were part of necessary change yes there were children
1: it makes me wish I taught a slightly older age group so I could make it assigned reading.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it is slightly too advanced for me to mm-hmm. <laughs> read aloud as well, but it did have me looking up if there are any kids' books about Black Panther Party and anyone involved in the movement. And I was able to
0: find a few that look like they're mostly self published, mm-hmm. but the search continues. That's something about the book that I think is really special is that it fills in this big hole in children's literature. There's a lot of children's literature about the civil rights movement, particularly with a focus on like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and a big focus on nonviolent protest. There's not as much. I mean, there's very little children's literature about um, the Black Panther Party or Black Power or the way that the Civil Rights Movement changed in the late 60s and early 70s. And that's purposeful. Right.
1: We'll get a lot more into that. Our historical context section for this particular episode is long.
0: Yeah. So, one of my favorite metaphors in the book comes at the very beginning of Chapter 1, where the girls are in an airplane for the first time flying to Oakland to see their mother again. And... There's a lot of turbulence and they're very scared. And so Delphine says, those clouds weren't through with us yet and dealt another Cassius Clay left and right jab to the body of our Boeing. And then she goes on to say, Big Ma, that's Pa's mother, still says Cassius Clay. Pa says Muhammad Ali or just Ali. I slide back and forth from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, whatever picture comes to mind. With Cassius Clay, you hear the clash of fists, like the plane getting jabbed and punched. With Muhammad Ali, you see a mighty mountain, greater than Everest, and can't no one knock down a mountain. Ugh, it's just such good writing. It is. Um, And I think it's also really clever to start off the book with this indication of the kind of political awareness that the different characters have. And it's sort of
1: in between two spaces. Right. Right. Uh, Delphine's occupying
0: right now. Right, and Delphine lives in that in-between. For the whole book, she kind of negotiates it, where she's influenced by her grandmother's generation, who calls Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay, and then also by her mother's generation, who calls Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali. This is also kind of indicative of Big Ma's politics. She's what she has said at home about the Black Panthers has not been positive. You know, she thinks that they're just stirring up trouble. Whereas she has
1: a lot of focus on respectability.
0: Yes. Big focus on respectability. And Earning.
1: I don't want to say earning the respect of white people, but at the very least not earning the disrespect. Right. Of white people.
0: Yeah. And of course that comes for a concern about safety. You know, this is a woman who's from Alabama and who mm-hmm. um, moved up North and, She's just trying to behave in a way that she thinks will teach her grandkids to be safe in a world that she knows is not safe for Mm -hmm. black little girls.
1: Uh, We also wanted to read you guys one from fairly early on in the book when the girls are first attending breakfast program and they're looking around and they're getting acquainted with the scene. And Delphine, our narrator, says, I thought Black Panthers would only look out for Black people, but there were the two Mexicans, a little white boy, and a boy who looked both Black and Chinese, and this is inside the day camp. Everyone else was Black. I'd never seen the Black Panthers making breakfast on the news, but then beating eggs never makes the evening news. Which is a very telling (laughs) excerpt, and I think sums up a lot of what this book aims to make clear. Mm -hmm. which is that we have been given this sensationalized image of the Panthers very deliberately um, over the years, and that this book does some myth-busting. I mean, I know that I knew very little about the Black Panthers in high school, and again, not a whole lot in college, and not until very recently learned that they had a breakfast program.
0: Mm -hmm. That's not the image that the FBI wanted you to have of this group also later in the book Delphine is still kind of coming to terms with how her pers- her how her expectations of the Panthers differ from the reality she says it wasn't at all the way the television showed militants, that's what they called the Black Panthers, militants who from the newspapers were angry fist wavers with their mouths wide open and their rifles ready for shooting they never showed anyone like Sister Makumbu or Sister Pat passing out toast and teaching us in classrooms. Also, one of my favorite lines in the book too. So on the first day at the day camp, Sister Mukumbu starts teaching them about the revolution and Vanetta raises her hand and says, we didn't come for the revolution, we came for breakfast.
1: And I love Sister Mukumbu. She is the girl's main teacher. But she's and Delphine tells us she's clearly a she says quote real teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, she can tell by the way she, by the way she teaches. And I love the way she introduces the first lesson that the girls are there for. She has a student Hirohito come up and demonstrate how the Earth moves around the sun, and ask the class for some names for what exactly the Earth is doing. And, you know you get words like spinning and orbiting, and then I think it's Delphine who says revolving. And Sister Makumbu says, exactly. And then she says, revolving, revolution, revolutionary, constant turning, making things change. And then that's how she introduces the idea of the movement and um, the Black Panthers as revolutionaries. And I love that. Oh, I thought it was so good.
0: Yeah, it is great. Another thing that I think I don't want to get lost in the conversation is that this book is quite funny. You would think it's a very serious topic, and it is, but Rita Williams Garcia is is able to inhabit the voice of a child to great effect. Words and language are a huge focus of this text. It goes back to Cecile renaming herself Inzilla when she moves to Oakland. We also are made to understand that one of the kind of final straws that made Cecile or Inzilla leave. Brooklyn was because she wasn't allowed to name Fern what she wanted to name her. She wanted to give Fern an African name and her father did not. And so naming is a really important part of the book. And Delphine thinks a lot about words. So she talks a lot about the dictionary, but she refers to it as Merriam-Webster. And it's cute because she clearly thinks that Mm -hmm. Merriam-Webster is a woman, (laughs) which is like, A reasonable thing to assume Miriam sounds, you know, it's a Miriam, it's a woman's name. I don't know whoever told her that it's two men's last names, but I'm sure that was a heartbreaking (laughs) moment. I hope no one ever tells her. Yeah. And at one point, Delphine says, good old Miriam Webster. I trusted Miriam because I thought instead of having children she didn't want, she wrote the dictionary. She didn't have anything else better to do, probably didn't have sisters and brothers to see after, which was why she knew every word in the world. Big Ma would have said, Miriam might as well be useful. (laughs) 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 They're just so cute.
1: I love the sisters.
0: Alright, so this is a conversation that Delphine has with Sister Mukumbu and Delphine is telling Sister Mukumbu that she doesn't want to go to the rally, that she doesn't think it's safe for her and her sisters because she understands that the Black Panthers are frequently the targets of police violence. Sister Makumbu said, We look out for each other. The rally is one way of looking out for all our sisters, all of our brothers. Unity, Sister Delphine. We have to stay united. I was thinking, alive. We have to be alive. Wouldn't little Bobby rather be alive than be remembered? And as a side note, this is Bobby Hutton, who is a teenage Black Panther who was murdered by the police. And then Delphine says... Wouldn't little Bobby rather be sitting out in the park than have the park named after him? I wanted to watch the news, not be in it. The more I thought about it, the more I had my answer. We were staying home tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. We certainly weren't going to be in no rally. Um, And of course they do end up going to the rally, but I think it's a really poignant and insightful and devastating observation by Delphine, you know, that... Mm -hmm there there's real risk this is
1: not a choice that anybody is making also right that to be a martyr
0: right yeah and and that she sees the the emptiness in some ways in that martyrdom um first and foremost it's loss right and it made me think a lot about all of the really uh, offensive comments that like white politicians and stuff made after the George Floyd or the Derek Chauvin thanking verdict. Joy,
1: thanking his sacrifice
0: yeah yeah, um,
1: I, big quotation, you can't see me, big quotation marks around sacrifice.
0: Right, and this idea that, that George Floyd willingly died for the cause of the movement or equality or whatever, which is bullshit, obviously. He was murdered. This is not a, a choice that he made or that anyone would make for themselves. So for him and the people who love him, they'd rather i'm sure they'd rather have him alive than have him be on signs so yeah that to me was just a really great example of how this book remains incredibly relevant okay. tragically relevant today and i think would be a great teaching tool for for kids right now
1: yes i want this book to be required reading yeah in fifth grade classes and up.
0: One of the things that this book does really well is capture a particular historical moment. And so we wanted to talk a bit about the historical context surrounding this book. You know, Terry and I did some more research on the Black Panthers to kind of supplement our conversation today. And if you w- want kind of a great primer for learning more about the Black Panther Party, NPR's show Throughline did a great episode called The Real Black Panthers that came out to coincide with all of the discussions around Judas and the Black Messiah, and it's a great episode about some of the myths about the Black Panther Party and then explaining what their political ideology really was. So, the Black Panther Party was an African-American revolutionary party that was founded in 1966 in Oakland, California, by Huey P. P. Newton and Bobby Seale. And so that's also what's really cool about this book, is that it takes place really in, like, the epicenter of where this movement was birthed Mm -hmm. in Oakland. And the party's original purpose was to patrol African-American neighborhoods to protect residents from acts of police brutality— And the Panthers eventually developed into a Marxist revolutionary group that called for the arming of all black people, the exemption of black people from the draft and from all sanctions of so-called white America, the release of all black people from jail because they had not been given the constitutional right to be tried by a jury of their peers, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and um, the payment of compensation to black people for centuries of exploitation by white Americans. And at its peak in the late 1960s, the membership exceeded 2,000, and the organization operated chapters in several major American cities. So that's actually one of the myths that was a little bit surprising to me as I did more research, was that the Black Panther Party was never actually that huge. You know, Mm -hmm. that, I mean, 2,000 members is... It's not nearly as large as the FBI um, wanted people to think it was.
1: If you're going to make these people a threat, Mm Mm-hmm. You're going to have to, you're going to have to make them believe they're knocking down your door right now.
0: Right. Um, J. Edgar Hoover said that the Black Panther Party represented the biggest threat to U.S. internal security. Yeah.
1: It's a pretty bold claim. Yeah. yeah.
0: To make about a group that has only about 2,000 members at its height.
1: And noteworthy, this quote that we learned from the podcast So one of the historians mentions that the quote about the Black Panther Party being the biggest threat to U.S. internal security happens at just the moment that the Panthers begin to start creating liberation schools and free breakfast programs.
0: Yeah, and so that's one of the things that she talks about is, well, A, that the FBI was worried about that because they saw that as effective and persuasive, Mm -hmm. and also that it was shaming the state because the state was not, taking very basic care of its children, not able to feed them. And so here was this Black Panther Party stepping in and taking responsibility where the state had abdicated its responsibility. So really what the Black Panthers,
1: one of the main things they addressed is this stuff that was sort of the kind of undercurrent of uh, what we saw as the mainstream civil rights movement the main goal was to address the continuing systemic inequalities that Black people were facing despite the civil rights legislation. These things that were being passed right now to protect Black people were not covering poverty, they weren't covering joblessness, uh, police violence, etc.
0: Yeah, and so those are the needs that the party emerged to address. One important part of the Black Panther Party is that there was an it was a Marxist organization with a Mm -hmm. emphasis on solidarity among oppressed people of all races. And so, like we heard in that quote from One Crazy Summer, there was um, Mexicans who were involved in the Black Panthers and Asian-Americans and even white people, poor white people were allied with the Black Panthers in many causes. And so that is there's a myth that has been created around the Black Panthers that they hated white people or were like racist in quotation marks racist against white people but that's not their ideology in fact in their like 10 point program which is kind of like the the thesis for the movement and their platform they say that they're not anti-white they're anti-wrong and so they Mm -hmm. acknowledge that what they really are is um, anti-capitalist they're anti-oppression and that oppression is often the fault of white people but not exclusively um, that they're also opposed to black oppressors as well
1: and that was one of the things that and they mentioned this in the podcast that (laughs) made them so dangerous to the fbi and the system one of the quotes from merch one of the historians is it was their ability not that they were anti-white it was that they were able to organize with whites that made them this threat to internal security Mm-hmm. So they weren't a threat to white people. They were a threat to white supremacism. They were a threat to capitalism and the notion of U.S. expansionism. And that is why the FBI hated them. Right. And worked so hard
0: to destroy them. Yes. And so there was really a dedicated, specific, intensive effort by the FBI to destroy the Black Panther Party from within the organization and from outside the organization. Many of the leaders, um, and not even leaders, just average people who were involved in the party, like Delphine's mom, were jailed. Many were murdered. And they also... Chased out of the country. Yep. And they also had a counterintelligence program that employed people like Crazy Kelvin to, to be a mole within the party, which is also what the film judas and the black messiah is about
1: and the death of fred hampton right and i'm so i'm so angry because we learned none of this Mm -hmm. and i think that most people can probably tell you who uh, certainly anyone who went to my school and probably a lot of other public schools around the country that if we were taught about the Black Panthers. It was from a decidedly negative standpoint that they were sort of the villains of the civil rights movement. And I feel so cheated because I feel like I had good teachers. It's like this, the whole country managed to um, paint them so negatively for years, for decades. And I just can't imagine what it would feel like to have been part of this party and to have done the work for your community and to have had the compassion and the bravery, and then to essentially be made either a threat or a joke by American pop culture and largely the education system. The Throughline episode starts with one of the historians talking about how she walked out of Forrest Gump when she saw it in theaters because of a very stereotypical portrayal of members of the black panther party and it's very much uh the angry we hate white people gun toting Mm -hmm. nothing of what it
0: actually represented what you're talking about is what happens when white supremacists tell the narrative of the civil rights movement exactly in that narrative which we are which american children are often taught in school um, basically, America was bad and racist for a period, a brief period of time. And then um, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks showed up, and everyone got their act together, and now racism is solved. It's a very neat narrative. It's a narrative that intentionally focuses on the nonviolent aspects of the movement. And it's a narrative that tries to abdicate um, America's, I think, responsibility for the harm that it's caused and white people's responsibility for the harm that they've caused and continue to cause and to take the agency away from from black revolutionaries yeah
1: as though that this the rights what (laughs) what marginalized groups do have now Mm. is something that was given to them by white people Mm. and not something that was taken by them through their agency
0: yeah It's a desire by white people um, who are writing these curriculums and telling these stories and writing these screenplays to want to present the civil rights movement or the successful parts of the civil rights movement as something that was passive. So the emphasis on the passivity of the civil rights movement and this idea that these nonviolent protests that really didn't threaten white supremacy in any way, that didn't make white people uncomfortable, and that just... um, Somehow, without making anyone uncomfortable, persuaded white people to cede power, which is um, an ahistorical understanding of what happened. That's the narrative that I was taught in elementary school and middle school and even some in high school. And what I really like about One Crazy Summer is that I think it could be a really great teaching tool to counter that narrative because mm-hmm. most school curriculum's discussion of the Black Panther Party, if it's acknowledged at all, which it often isn't, is really woefully incomplete and inaccurate.
1: And I would say overall negative. Yeah. I mean, I think probably, and as this is if you learned about the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think we had maybe a matter of minutes dedicated to the Black Panthers, but the Black Panthers are often associated with Malcolm X, even though he was assassinated before creation of the party. And... I do remember that we were taught that he was almost a spoil to mlk mm-hmm. malcolm x was too angry he was violent he hated white people so i i don't know i'm getting mad thinking about it again because sarah and i took a class together in our freshman year of college called race and revolution and that was one of the first times that i feel i was ever given the history lesson that I should have gotten. I remember it distinctly. I owe so much of what I know now to that professor. Dr. Conley.
0: So on the topic of learning or not learning about the Black Panther Party, I found this really interesting article by Adam Sanchez and Jesse Hagopian, which is called What We Don't Learn About the Black Panther Party But Should. And um, one of the quotes from the article that I found particularly notable they said this local organizing that the panthers engaged in has been largely erased yet it is precisely what won them such widespread support by 1970 a market dynamics abc poll found that black people judged the panthers to be the organization most likely to increase the effectiveness of the black liberation struggle and two-thirds showed admiration for the party coming in the midst of an all-out assault on the Panthers from the white press and law enforcement, including FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's claim that the Panthers were, quote, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country, end quote. That support was remarkable. So I think that's important to note, too, because I feel like so Mm -hmm. much of the conversation around Black Panthers has to do with how white people perceived them. As though that's
1: the most important thing.
0: (laughs) And textbooks that discuss the Black Panther Party... If they discuss it at all, usually associate the Panthers with violence and racial separatism. And they also often erase the socialist character of the Black Panther Party. So one
1: of the founders of the Black Panther Party, Huey Newton, explained, we realize that this country became very rich upon slavery and that slavery is capitalism in the extreme. We have two evils to fight, capitalism and racism. We must destroy both the Panthers understood that black people could not achieve socialism on their own, and their work building multi-racial, anti-capitalist coalitions flowed from that analysis.
0: Right. So this is really runs in direct contrast to the myth that they were primarily concerned with racial separatism. They were not, and in fact they understood that to cleave themselves from other oppressed groups would weaken their power.
1: They had better relationships with a lot of the LGBT Mm. groups at the time and the women's liberation movement as well.
0: When you realize that, it makes a lot more sense as to why the FBI was so determined to destroy this group because, Mm -hmm. I mean, a group that successfully builds solidarity between all oppressed people is a force to be reckoned with. And
1: if you want the system to stay the way it is... You're going to do everything in your power to stop it.
0: Yep. Including a whole hell of a lot of murder. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that the podcast talks about is that the Panthers who were unjustly arrested and killed um, and imprisoned, that these are political prisoners. And that the U.S. Mm -hmm. doesn't like to think of itself as a country that has political prisoners, but we do. We still do. I remember what I understood about the Black Panthers when I was a kid from the very limited information that I got from my classrooms um, was that they failed, you know? Whereas, like, Mm -hmm. the nonviolent civil rights movement was a success, the Black Panther Party failed.
1: Not that they were actively destroyed. Right. And fought at every turn.
0: Yeah. So that's another point that this article by adam sanchez and jesse hagopian brings up is they say that several textbooks also blame the panthers for the end of the civil rights movement while simultaneously ignoring or downplaying the role the fbi played in destroying the party a lot of textbooks will say something along the lines of that the civil rights movement declined because white people were frightened by the black panthers and urban riots but this completely ignores the fact that decline in public support was also a primarily a result of the counterintelligence program of the FBI. So moving on to our next segment, we have, and now a word from us kids, which, please don't sue us, PBS, but I did steal. <laughs> I did steal that phrase from Arthur. So, these are reviews left on the book review website Dogo, where kids leave book reviews. And this book is very popular on that site. It has an average rating of 4.4 out of 5 stars. The kids seem to love it. Got a few of my favorite reviews here.
1: This is from Happy Face7, who says, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is driving me crazy. I want to read it so badly, I can die. <laughs> <laughs>
0: One thing that was cute about this book Is there was a lot of kids writing reviews Before they'd read the book Saying how much they want to read the book
1: That's so sweet I know So do it I know,
0: what's stopping you? I hope that Happy Face 7 finally got to read the book So they didn't have to die So that she can die
1: But I'm really glad that Happy Face 7 Was so excited to read this book And whether you are now free from this mortal coil (laughs) um, Or you are alive because of it I really hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Me too. This is from Christina Welch, who says, One Crazy Summer is about three sisters who travel to Oakland, California to visit their mother who left them when they were young. It takes place in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. Their poet mother is not very friendly to the girls and doesn't seem to want them around. The sisters spend their days at a community center where they meet and are influenced by the Black Panthers. I love the author's style of writing. She described events and characters in such a vivid and unique way. I found myself thinking that I would have never thought to describe things the way that she did. It really created some memorable images for me. I also liked that it was a historical fiction book because I learned a lot about the Black Panthers. Three stars. Now, I don't know how old Christina is, but if this review was, like, for a teacher, I bet you $5 her teacher loved. This is great. What a wonderful... I feel like if you are the author and you read this, I don't know, praise Mm -hmm. from a child reader, that would be something that you would appreciate as an author you know Mm -hmm. she described events and characters in such a vivid and unique way I would have never thought to describe things like that it created some memorable images
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I agree and that's something that's really excellent about this book and something that I don't want to forget is how well crafted it is and Mm -hmm. how good of a writer Rita Williams Garcia is a lot of times when critics and people like us even talk about books or work that's written by people of color or work that's like explicitly political they'll spend most of the conversation focusing on the politics of the work and not as much on the craft and how the book is actually written on the sentence level and so I just wanted to say that like this book is so brilliant in terms of images and figurative language she's great with metaphors and similes one of my favorites was when delphine is talking about her name and how she really likes her name she says delphine had a grown sound like it was waiting for me to slide into it like a grown woman slides into a mink coat and clips on ruby earrings (laughs) just so cute and she also says somewhere else i
1: love the one about her little sister being the bread of bread yeah yeah you want (laughs) to read that one um, talking about Fern and how she'd just been a baby when Cecile left. She said, It's hard to believe that the last time they'd seen each other, Fern had been a loaf of bread in Cecile's arms.
0: Oh, how sweet. There you go. <laughs> Such a cute image. Yeah, and the characterization is super effective. All of the three little sisters have different personalities, I love the way that Delphine is characterized as kind of the rock in the family and sees herself in a caretaker role.
1: And we get this idea that that is a positive thing in many aspects, Mm -hmm. but also something that she needs to be allowed to let go of. Yeah. She is 11. And something that Cecile, who is not like, you know, a particularly likable character by, Mm -hmm. you know, base standards, sort of starts to free her from that. Towards the end of their stay, I I feel is a is a very motherly act to impart that kind of wisdom and the maturity to to let go of that sense of constant responsibility. And I think is one of the gifts that Cecile does
0: give her her oldest daughter. Yeah, yeah, she tells her to be selfish, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the next review that we have is from a repeat... Our old friend. Yes. A repeat contributor, Sinew, or Snoo, I'm not sure, but they also left a great review for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and...
1: So we're happy to have you back, Sinew. Yeah.
0: So they said, One Crazy Summer is a great book. Is takes place in the civil rights movement. The three girls go to their real mom's house and their mother doesn't really care about them. You can figure out the rest.
1: (laughs) Read the fucking book if you want to know more. Yeah.
0: I'm not gonna do it for you. I don't
1: know if I can. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think you led with the main plot points. Yeah, you touched on some things, the civil rights movement, I guess, but like. You can figure out the rest. Do whatever you want, I don't care. (laughs) Sunyud, did you read the book, be honest? I love both of her, his, their reviews. I think they're both excellent. Uh, I think this one had a little less thought put into it. Yeah. I would. If agree. I'm going to get critical. <laughs> can we please have Sinu as a guest contributor? Yeah. I really feel like he, she, they is one of us now. Alright. All right. Uh, can I please read Clover931's yeah. review? Yeah. Okay, Clover931 says... This book is about three girls who go to California to stay with their mother who abandoned them for twenty who abandoned them for twenty-eight days. I I'm gonna briefly pause. To be clear, I get I get what she's saying, that they stay for twenty-eight days. It does read very much as though their mother abandoned them for twenty-eight days.
0: <laughs> Which is inaccurate.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was more like several years. Okay, so anyway, their mother, who abandoned them for 28 days. They end up going to summer school all the time and eating Chinese food every night. It is so good.
0: She really missed the forest for the egg rolls there.
1: (laughs) But everything in here is true, so I'm going to say partial credit.
0: And our last review comes from Kyran, who said, I got this book from my local school book fair, and it turned out to be great. This author writes books so great, it's like she actually put her heart into it. It's almost, like, inexplainable how well it is written. This is, like, my most all-time fave book. (sighs) Really cute. And I agree. There is something almost inexplainable about how good this book is.
1: I hope Rita Williams-Garcia has a chance to read some of these Dogo reviews. Because, again, I feel like as an author, hearing a kid's review that says... It's like she actually put her heart into it. it would just be so touching.
0: <laughs> All right, now let's talk about... Respectability <Billy> politics? politics. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I found this great article that was written by Molly Rosner, and it was published in The Public Historian in 2021, and the article is called Playing Not So Nicely Respectability Politics and One Crazy Summer's Radical Black Girl Protagonist. And the article talks about how this book gives a history of the civil rights movement that doesn't emphasize or center respectability politics. So, Terry, can you give us a definition of what respectability politics is?
1: Respectability politics, or respectability narratives, are representations of marginalized individuals meant to depict them as sharing similar traits, values, and morals that align with the dominant group's definition of respectability, or what is respectable. So respectability politics is a school of thought that utilizes respectability narratives as the basis for enacting social, political, and legal change. And throughout US history, activists and legislators have pointed to the similarities between the dominant and marginalized group to provide legal rationale for giving the marginalized group equal rights like citizenship or pay. And respectability politics upholds the idea that the supposed worthiness of a marginalized group should be evaluated. Um, That is, by comparing the traits and actions of the marginalized group to the values of respectability set solely by the dominant group.
0: Well, there's a lot of problems with respectability politics, of course. Um, One of them is that the definition of what the dominant group views as quote unquote respectable can always change racist white people are setting the definition of how a respectable person should act if black people act in that way then racist white people can just change their minds and say actually no now you need to do this you know
1: anyone who makes the argument that we've all heard before that people you know people shouldn't be rioting Mm -hmm. people shouldn't be quote violently protesting are the same people who will be angry at people who kneel during the anthem
0: yeah you can move the line. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can move the line. And of course, also, I think the even bigger problem with it is just that it's it's not a moral way to think about human rights, you know, to think that you have... You don't have to earn the respect of yeah. your oppressors. Yeah. People don't deserve rights because they're good people or because they dress well. They deserve rights because they're human beings. Because of this, respectability politics can be deployed by the dominant class to try to control the actions of or rationalize the harm done to marginalized groups. We see this all the time, even with the present day Black Lives Matter movement, right? The idea that people act in such a way that justifies the police brutality that harms them or that if they just phrased their signage in a way that was a little bit less confrontational then mm-hmm. maybe... Maybe more white people would agree with them. So when you
1: hear someone say, I was a, I was on their side or I was with them until they started doing this, yeah. that's respectability politics. Right. Exactly. And now you know the word and you can tell them to shut up.
0: <laughs> yep. And so one of the really compelling things about the Black Panther Party is that there was really a, a rejection of respectability politics and, and an acknowledgement that it wasn't working and that they needed to try something different. And that really scared a lot of white people, including J. Edgar Hoover. What this article by Molly Rosner talks about is how there's a big problem in much of children's lit about black people, which is that she says most fictional attempts to teach young readers about the history of African-Americans or other groups who have endured oppression fail to adequately capture their pain and struggle. Some books feature black characters, but depict them as having the values and behaviors of their largely white middle class audience. Or they fail to represent the many different and complex family situations of the black community, as well as different voices within the black community. Additionally, authors often situate conflict as resolved in the past rather than demonstrate how issues like racism and classism continue to impact the everyday lives of black girls. Finally, like most stories about young girls, those about American history tend to underplay the legitimacy of negative emotions in girls, or the possibility of more radical responses to injustice. Kind of gets back it. to our, what we said way back in our um, episode about when my name was Kyoko and the importance of Linda Sue Park letting soon have her anger, and that the anger was a legitimate and reasonable okay. response. Yeah. That's called a text-to-text connection. Thank you. So this article <laughs> compared One Crazy Summer to some American girl books that discuss the civil rights movement and have black characters and basically talks about how a lot of those American girl books have respectability narratives, whereas One Crazy mm-hmm. Summer does not. Yeah. So
1: I'll read you guys a quote from the yeah. article that i think sums that up pretty well in williams garcia's book delphine and her sisters hear people saying racist things directly to them this is rare in children's books in the american girl book no ordinary sound which also takes place during the civil rights era the subject of racially identifying language comes up but not in the context of the protagonist melody's direct experience instead at the dinner table there's a theoretical discussion of the terms used to describe black people her grandparents say colored her parents say negro and her sister says black people Ultimately, the conversation concludes with Melody wishing they didn't need all these color words at all. She asks, what about Americans? This proposed solution, reminiscent of the plea can't we all just get along, erases the fact that a colorblind designation, the labeling of everyone as Americans, erases the different cultures and experiences that the terms black and white represent.
0: Yeah. Sums it up pretty well. I think that that is an indication of how some children's books place an emphasis on neatness Mm -hmm. and I think American Girl books are definitely historical fiction that places a priority on tying up a narrative in a way that feels satisfying and neat and also I think provides like a comfortable distance between the past and the present. Yes.
1: And I think gives a little bit too much softness to I, I would say young white readers. Yeah we're not talking about you. <laughs> yeah. The, when you're able to point at the book and say, see, the black girl said it, the black character said it, mm-hmm. can't we all just get along? That offers too much cushioning exactly, for white kids.
0: For sure, and I think that that's something that I find really compelling and sophisticated about this book, One Crazy Summer, and something that I think provides contrast to a lot of other children's literature is the messiness of the plot and the refusal to tie things up with a bow. We do get redemptive information about Cecile towards the end. Obviously, she had a very traumatic life. But I don't think that we're meant to see that as exonerating her for having abandoned her children or for being such, frankly, unkind as a mother, you know. But instead, it's not meant to be this redemptive moment where we're like, oh, I see, she's not a bad person after all. But really, it's just, oh, I see. She's a complicated person because life is complicated. Um, She's a person. Yeah. I mean, the same way with the movement. I think a lot of American Girl books that focus on periods of turmoil in American history like to kind of wrap up those narratives. And this book very clearly indicates that nothing has really been solved by the end. Mm -hmm. The police are still going to be able to arrest people like Cecile, And the movement continues because it needs to. Here's one more quote from Rosner's article that I think is really important. So she says, One Crazy Summer does not emphasize moderating one's behavior so as to not offend anyone. Instead, the book stresses the importance of learning how to be honest, curious, and moral. And then she goes on to say that by privileging niceness, children's book authors offer a message that reflects contemporary American views of girlhood. The girls should be polite, passive and accepting of the status quo. When authors downplay the intensity of violence and conflict in American history, they do young readers a disservice. They fail to offer them models of behavior that will teach them how to fight for equal rights and oppose racism. Oh, yeah, and one other thing that um, that this book demonstrates that I think sets it apart from a lot of other children's books about the movement is that it focuses on change happening at the community level and because of organizing, rather than changing the minds of a few individuals. Yes, very good point. So many of the books about race that I read when I was a kid were like, this racist Can white Can we person. get old
1: man Jenkins from next door to like us? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Isn't that the fish in SpongeBob? <laughs>
0: old man Jenkins, I think so, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. But yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking exactly, about. Exactly, yeah.
0: Can we win the approval of our racist neighbor? Right. Yeah, all right, so let's move into some of the lessons that this book has for us today.
1: Well, I think one of the biggest ones is that. The kids are part of movement building and revolution and social change, and that women are as well.
0: Yeah. And I think something else that this book talks about is how the forces that we're working against as activists and people who are fighting racism and fighting for equality and equity, the forces that we're working against are violent and dangerous, and it's important to acknowledge that. I think a lot of times The civil rights movement gets really sanitized in popular culture and in children's literature, where it's primarily a concern of, like, hurt feelings, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, this person doesn't like me, and that hurts my feelings, when really one of, I mean, the more important and dangerous concern is, this person doesn't like me, and they could kill me
1: and that the forces that we are working with or not with the forces that we are working against are systemic and that they are the people in power you know again like we were saying a lot of the times in kids books the forces that we're talking about are one singular racist neighbor Mm -hmm. you know one boy at school Mm -hmm. and this book acknowledges that the forces that we're talking about here are an entire institution we're talking about the police we're talking about the government. We're talking about a system that's been in place for um,
0: centuries. It's also one of the only books, children's books I've ever read that meaningfully discusses police brutality. It makes sense that that would be a big focus of this book because the Black Panther Party originally grew out of a desire to protect Black people from police brutality. But yeah, it's, it's just incredibly, tragically still very relevant today. And a big thing for me from this book is
1: that the conceptions we have
0: about revolutionary
1: groups are taught to us by the people in power. So, don't
0: believe everything you learn. So this reminds me of a quote from Ta-Nehisi Coates' incredible book, Between the World and Me. And he talks about how every February they would be herded into assemblies for a ritual review of the civil rights movement and that the teachers urged them toward the examples of Freedom Marchers, Freedom Riders, and Freedom Summers. He says, quote, It seemed that the month could not pass without a series of films dedicated to the glories of being beaten on camera. And he says, The black people in these films seem to love the worst things in life, love the dogs that rent their children apart, the tear gas that clawed at their lungs, the fire hoses that tore off their clothes and tumbled them into the streets. They seem to love the men who raped them and the women who cursed them, love the children who spat on them, the terrorists that bombed them. Why are they showing this to us? Why were only our heroes nonviolent? I speak not of the morality of nonviolence, but of the sense that blacks are in a special need for this morality. Back then, all I could do was measure those freedom lovers by what I knew. And then he goes on to say, I judge them against the country I knew, which had acquired the land through murder and tamed it under slavery, against the country whose armies fanned out across the world to extend their dominion. The world, the real one, was civilization secured and ruled by savage means. How could the school valorize men and women whose values society actively scorned? How could they send us out into the streets of Baltimore, knowing all that they were, and then speak of nonviolence? So Another important lesson from the book is, I think, the importance of looking out for your family and building bonds with your community. Change doesn't happen alone. It's really important that um, when Cecile is arrested, Black Panthers, specifically Hirohito and his mother, show up and take care of the three girls while their mother is Mm -hmm. incarcerated. And so... They rally around
1: one another. mm -hmm. They feed one another.
0: Yes. Another important lesson from this book is don't eat take out egg rolls every night or you will get a stomachache probably yes also important lesson <laughs> <laughs> that this book tells us is that it's okay to have a crush on a cute boy if he is nice to you
1: Delph- oh wait can i quickly read one of my yes. favorite quotes from the end mm-hmm. where she? i love this book i love it i love it i think it's another one that we've read where the author does a really good job of writing a child's voice and a child's experience and mm-hmm. a child's feelings here it is, it's in the chapter So, uh, which is one of the last chapters. So Hirohito, uh, while the girls were staying with him, let Delphine ride on his go-kart. And the three Ankton sisters who, two of whom have a crush on Hirohito, have some strong feelings about it. One of the Ankton sisters, Eunice, uh, says, Hirohito, you let a girl on your go-kart, your precious go-kart? He says, yeah, so. She says, you like Delphine. And this exchange happens, and Eunice kind of wraps it up by saying, Hirohita Woods, I can't believe you let a girl ride on your go-kart. So? I smiled without smiling like Cecile does. Besides, he could have said, I don't like her, or she's too tall, or she's too plain. He could have said what all the boys in my class said. I wouldn't like her if she were the last girl on Earth. Instead, here Hirohita said, so? Like, okay. Like it was okay to like Delphine. I said it too. So? Ugh.
0: Oh. I love that. Isn't that
1: great? Yeah. And that's exactly how kids think. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, that is how I would have felt yeah. if a boy said so when accused of liking me back then.
0: Yeah. You know?
1: Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, how did she
0: remember that? She's such a good writer. Uh, one of the last very important lessons from this book is that if you're going to be a bootlicker, don't do it in broad daylight where any random little panther could see you. <laughs> mm-hmm surely don't surely don't and also come for the breakfast stay for the revolution (laughs) (laughs) all right so i think we should rate this book out of 10 egg rolls how many egg rolls would you give this book uh this is easy 10 out of 10 egg rolls no discussion agreed That's very easy 10 out of 10 for sure thank you all so much for listening you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess and you can also email us at reading during recesspod at gmail dot com.
1: And to all you big sisters out there, stay reading.